Quaker podcast where liberty is our mission. Today is Tuesday, April 22nd, 2014. This is podcast number 370, and my name is Ben Stone. I've got a guest today with me, but before I get to that, I wanted to touch a little bit of business here. Uh, first, I want to say a very special thank you to our Bad Quaker Facebook uh, fan page moderators and the moderators over at the Bad Quaker Forum. I haven't been any help at all to the Bad Quaker Facebook page for over a year now. I've been off of Facebook for a year, and uh, or right at a year. And uh, so I want to thank the folks that run the, fa- the Bad Quaker Facebook page. I want to specifically pick on uh, Edson Avila Torres, and I apologize if I'm messing up your name. Edson, I appreciate the work you're doing. The, the pictures that you've put up lately have really gotten a lot of attention, and they've been really good stuff, and I appreciate the effort that you put in there. And for the moderators over the Bad Quaker Forum, you know, I have just uh, not fulfilled uh, my commitments there at all, and you guys have kept things going, and you've kept discussions going, and I appreciate your work. Um, eventually I don't, you know, I, I can, I never talk, I very rarely talk about the future in absolutes, but as much as possible, I would like to get over there and get active on the forum again. But in all honesty, I doubt that I will anywhere in the near future, uh, because of everything else that's going on. And the last thing I want to talk about, uh, before I introduce our guest is not real pleasant, but it's something that I, I really feel I need to touch on. I have gotten... A number of complaints to about Stefan Molyneux, and I, I want to say first off that Stefan does not answer to me. As a matter of fact, we don't really know each other that well. I've sat down and talked to him for a couple hours one time, but uh, you know I don't really have an inside to, to Stefan. Um, so I, I, I might, you know, as much as I am sympathetic to the complaints, I can't really, uh, Stefan doesn't have my, I don't have Stefan's ear, so I can't really, uh, address it. Uh, but it is kind of odd that the complaints about Stefan, uh, some of them, and there's, and there's been some about his attitude toward theists, and there's been some about his attitude toward women, and, and different people have complained about different things with Stefan. But, uh, it, it, it got me, I haven't listened to Steph's podcast in a while or his show or whatever. So I went over and listened to his, uh, Free Domain Radio number 2672, how they are winning and we are losing. And I, I saw what the complaints are about. Basically, he spent about 10 minutes, about half of the recording, setting up and then condemning a donor who only sent him one dollar. And, uh, in the same, podcast he admitted a six-figure income from his work from his liberty related work and he was complaining that this this caller he preys upon him but only sent him a dollar now uh this in a separate story set that whole thing that i just said on a shelf and just let it sit there for a minute while i tell something different the beginning of 2014, I was pretty much certain that my wife and I were not going to go to Pork Fest. My health was failing. Uh, I was I was dying. I was you know getting real close to being dead, and I knew that between finances and health, there was just no way that we were going to go back to Pork Fest. In addition, uh, some of the things about uh, that have gone on. Um, in New Hampshire have been kind of disturbing to me, so but I'm not going to go into that today. But anyway, so we had just come to that conclusion. We're not going to go to Porkfest. The Porkfest folks contacted me and asked if we were going, and I had to politely tell them no, and I said the finances are just not there. And they uh, they started trying to help us try to figure out a way to, to overcome that problem. At the same time, uh, Michael Dean and some, some of the people over there at Freedom Fiends got together and put together a site at Indiegogo, Indiegogo 
and started doing a campaign to raise money to send uh, my wife and I to Porkfest. Now, I had no part in the Indiegogo campaign. That was that was not me setting it up. It was not me driving it. The money didn't even go to me. It, Michael handled that in conjunction with the Bad Quaker uh, website, and you know they're making the arrangements on it. And yet, people still uh, decided to uh, to mouth off to me, and I put it that way intentionally. That I was begging for money and, and again complained about Stefan Molyneux and me as two people who beg for money all the time. And, uh, and I, I took it personally. I, I really did. Um, you know, uh, the Bad Quaker website has been financed by a lot of people. A lot of people giving small amounts. And including one dollar. We've had quite a few people, you know, the folks who support the Bad Quaker forum, many of them, uh, have a thing set up where they have a membership and it pays three, and they pay three dollars a month to be, uh, members in the Bad Quaker Forum. Now that's three dollars a month. That's a very small amount. But you know, I appreciate that. Not that I get any of the money from it. That all goes for maintenance to buy this mic you're listening to and the equipment and the website and all this kind of stuff. We're not in it to make money. I have, I have money. I don't, I have money to live on. We, ever, all the money that goes to Bad Quaker, um, goes to support the site and goes to support the equipment and the and the you know things like gas to go to places like Porkfest and stuff like that. And I appreciate uh, a one dollar donation because I understand sometimes one dollar coming out of your pocket is a dollar more than you can afford. And for you to take that and give it to somebody because you're wanting to support them, well, good for you. Uh, be careful with your money and don't give it to just anybody who's begging for it. And I appreciate the three dollars a month from the folks at the at the Bad Quaker Forum. And I appreciate when people have given me Bitcoin that's only worth two or three dollars, uh, you know, a tiny fraction of Bitcoin that's only worth two or three dollars. I appreciate that. I really do. I think I I assume in my mind that you're giving exactly what you feel you can afford. And I appreciate that. I don't care what the amount is. And in that case, I think Stefan's wrong for belittling. Uh, a donor for giving him a dollar. I think he should have accepted that in the same humility that somebody who gives $500 and realize that that person gave what they had and no, don't judge them on what they can and can't do. And again, I don't have Stefan's ear, uh, so I have no input on that, but I was a little bit insulted on the final line of his podcast where he essentially said, donate to me or, uh, or go to church and get out of my way, which is about the worst insult Stefan could give someone. Uh, I don't have that attitude at all. On the other hand, I didn't run the Indiegogo campaign. I'm not out there begging for, for money to go to Porkfest. I can either go or I can't. And if I mention it, then if the money comes in, I either take it or I don't. But, uh, but I'm certainly not going to belittle anybody for a $1 donation. Now, all of that, uh, wasting all of the time of my uh, good friend that's on the line with me to say all of that about Stefan and about Indiegogo and about uh, all that other stuff... I apologize to my guest for wasting his time, and I want to say a quick uh, disclaimer that my guest, Bill Bupert, uh, has n- absolutely nothing to do with everything I just said. He, I did not discuss with him ahead of time that I was going to drag Stefan Molyneux through the mud, and I'm not in any way asking his opinion on Steph or putting him on the spot on that, and nothing I said reflects on Bill's uh, opinion of Steph or anyone else. So anyway, so the cat's out of the bag. With me is my friend Bill Bupert, and I am honored to speak with such a man, and I am even honored more to know such a man. Bill, uh, welcome back to the Bad Quaker Podcast. This officially means that you are the most frequent guest that I've had. You now have kicked Jeffrey Tucker off the throne. Well, I I am honored, Ben, every time when I come on your show, and to uh, to one up Jeffrey Tucker, that's something I gotta I gotta put a notch on my uh, my rifle stock. <laughs> uh, and if in case you don't know, Bill Bupert is uh, his website is zerogov.com, and he is the author of the book Zero Gov: um, uh, Limited Government, Unicorns, and Other Mythical Creatures. Is that it? Other mythological creatures. Yeah, close enough. <laughs> And uh, Bill had a wonderful article. If you haven't seen it yet, go over to ZeroGov. There will be a link in today's show notes. Uh, go over to ZeroGov and read this article. It's about questioning obedience. 
Um, Bill, what's the difference between questioning obedience and questioning authority? Well, first of all, Ben, I have to give you credit for inspiring me to write that article due to a conversation that you and I had probably a couple months ago. But what it all comes down to is that question authority is very fanciful and chic. And what it means is where you say, well, what business does the government have doing that and such? Now, I know this is going to sound like I'm going around the barn to get to the point that you're that I'm trying to make and you're trying to ask me. But I am a capital S Stoic. As an Epictetan Stoic, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, uh, and a number of other Stoic authors have always said that your span of control is the most important thing that you have in your life to control chaos. In this case, I can question authority all day long, but the Stoic answer is, well, you're at the wrong end of the equation. The Stoic answer is you question your obedience to that authority because atomistically and as a free moral agent, that's where you touch the state at its most vital point. So if Ben and Bill, audience members, and a critical mass of folks across these United States or even globally say, you know what, question authority is sexy, but question obedience is what where the rubber hits the road, I really think that's where we will start to move forward on this road to libertarian paradise. Again, I'm, I'm not speaking for Bill Bupert when I say this, but I, in my opinion, in my mind, that's the difference between an organization like uh, the Oath Keepers, which I appreciate the thought of what they're talking about, and actually being a sheriff or being in the military and saying, you know what, that order you just gave me is wrong and I'm not doing it. I am not going to you know, fill in the blank. I'm not going to do that. And And the difference between between that line in your mind between, well, you don't have the authority to tell me to do that, and you know what? I'm not doing that. that that's a huge leap right there. It's, it's a huge leap. It's the same leap. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, old cinema, and Ben, you're just as old as I am, so you remember Spartacus, right? Oh, yeah. With Kirk Douglas? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a great scene in that movie. You can find it on YouTube if you don't watch a movie, but I would urge your audience to watch the movie. Kirk Douglas does a stand-up job. It's a great script, great screenwriting and cinematography. Probably one of the best films out there. But there's a scene where Crassus is standing in front of all these slaves who have finally been defeated with his Roman army in place. And he says, I must know who Spartacus is. Kirk Douglas, who is Spartacus, looks around. And Kirk Douglas, being the stand-up guy that he is, stands up and he declares, I am Spartacus. Tony Curtis stands up and says, I am Spartacus. Thousands of his followers stand up and say, I am Spartacus. And they all know that by declaring they are Spartacus, they are going to suffer one of the worst deaths imaginable in the ancient world, or I would suggest in this world, which is crucifixion right. on the Appian Way. So that, to me, that that sort of distills what my, what my essay was trying to put forth about question and obedience. That's a really good example, and the the crucifixions that they did on the Appian Way there uh, were just horrific. Uh, you know, one after the other, it was like it was like imagine driving down a highway with uh, you know the standard electric poles or telephone poles or whatever running alongside the highway, except there is a slave crucified and hanging on each and every one of them as you drive along. I know. You know what? What makes the Spartacus story even more awe-inspiring to me, Ben, is that think of it. This was a society, Rome and uh, Byzantium, all of these great empires back then. And when I say great empires, I'm not saying they're great in the superlative sense of what a great way to organize society. I'm saying the huge expanse of humanity that they controlled. Right. All of these great empires ran on slavery. If it weren't for slavery, they could not have achieved the depth, width. And, and uh, ambition that they did. And and the fact that the slaves at one point in time, not all of them, but a good portion of them stood up and said, we're not doing it. We're not going to do that anymore. This is not how it's going to be. And it almost brought the entire empire to its knees. So uh, uh, quick edit there. Um, we had some connection problems, so we reconnected. So we're back on there again talking about uh, questioning obedience with Bill Bupert. Um, Bill, uh, one of the top, well, I guess the main topic that I, uh, sent you a note about and, and said that I wanted to get you on the show talking about is it's something that I've noticed a pattern for a few years now. 
every few months there will be some new statistics come out. And the mainstream media all take a turn reporting the story of military suicides, and they all give it some kind of current twist to make it sound like it's something new or unique. But every few months, this becomes a story again, and all of the mainstream media take their turns, you know, covering the story, and then it fades into the darkness, and we all forget about it like it never happened again because, you know, there is this giant case of uh, of attention disorder throughout America that means that we can't remember what the stories were six months ago, so they have to... It's kind of like, you know, for a long time there, uh, every spring there was Shark Week, where all of the mainstream media just focused on the shark problem for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden somebody would come out with the fact that uh, there's not any actual statistical difference between the shark attacks this in the last two weeks from what we've ever seen in any other time. And this is entirely generated, uh, media-generated uh, disaster that's going on. And then they'd forget about it for another year. But sure enough, next spring, the same story is going to come back and we're going to have Shark Week again. And I, and I kind of saw the military suicide story, whether it's true or not, it's kind of falling into that category where the news media knows that every few months they can revive it it'll be a story for a week or so and then they can move on to the next uh, uh you know dog and pony show of the day um what's what's your opinion on on that aspect of the uh, situation i agree ben but i have to make this this uh brief preamble which will which will be a uh, deja vu for you since we just talked about this before we started the uh, podcast conversation i don't trust statistics i don't con- I don't uh, trust the government's use of statistics. I don't trust the government's ability to think critically, nor do I trust the government's ability and most academics' ability to make a distinction between causation and correlation. And the way that I would uh, illustrate that is this. I don't think anthropogenic global warming is provable. But then again, I don't think non-anthropogenic global warming or cooling is provable. Because I think what they call causation is actually correlation when it comes to ice core samples, temperature variations over thousands of years, those kinds of things. My conclusion is a third way when it comes to climate change, which is that no climate on a planetary body like the Earth can remain at a static temperature for a long period of time ever because it is an evolving ecosystem in both the living and atmospheric conditions. So my explanation for climate change is that it is impossible to establish causative reasons for the climate becoming warmer or cooler because the global ecosystem is far too complex to calculate in that fashion with the present scientific capability and empiricism we have at our disposal. I use that as an illustration of why I bloody hate statistics. The second reason I hate statistics, I don't care as a gun owner and a, and a man of the gun, I don't care if guns in private hands statistically cause more deaths than guns in government hands because for me it's not a consequentialist argument. It's a moral argument that can't be breached, and that moral argument is that my right to self-defense is inalienable and unassailable. And no matter the statistic to try to diminish that right, if you attempt to diminish it, you are hitting me where I live. I think this is really, really important to something you said right there is that this is a a moral question. It's not, you know, it almost doesn't matter what the numbers are. Uh, you could have statistics, absolutely legitimate statistics that by far show whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, I still have the moral right of self-defense and any excuse that you want to paint that with doesn't change that. I think that's a thing, Bill, you and I, and I'm not saying this as a negative towards anyone else in the liberty movement or, or anyone else, you know, uh, I'm not saying this as a negative about anybody else. I'm saying that I have seen this in you and, and I know that it is at the core of my being that I don't care what results that you get or what results you're wanting to get or what results have been proven in any way. What the thing that matters to me is that I can look in the mirror and know that I'm doing the right thing. 
And if I'm doing the wrong thing, then it's my responsibility to change what I'm doing because I'm looking at that guy in the mirror knowing he's doing the wrong thing. That's who I answer to, that guy right there. And that's the standard that I have to keep myself to. And I don't care what, what the, you know, what the practical end of it is. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe in, uh, a sound, let's take a totally different subject. I believe in sound money because it's morally right. I don't care if it works right or not. I don't care if there's a more efficient way. It's morally sound. And, you know, uh, fractionary, fractional reserve banking run by a banking cartel and en- enriching a small group of bankers and government people is immoral. Um, so, so that ends the question to me. It doesn't matter if some Keynesian can prove that it's more efficient. I don't care. It's wrong and I don't like it. And that's, that's the stance that I take. Well, I'm with you, Ben, and welcome to the Stoic Club. I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to you fairly often, enjoyed every conversation, and I think that you would benefit greatly from me, from reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and taking a look at Epictetus and Seneca and some of the lesser known Stoics, and, uh, you would enjoy where they were coming from. I think you're probably right. I'll have to, that's on my list of things to do. I'll have to do that. Uh, back on the topic of military suicides, uh, do you, uh, I don't know, you know, I, they were really high after World War One. They were really high after World War Two. I'm sure they were high after this, you know, Lincoln's War, the so-called Civil War. Um, suicides were a big thing in the 1970s with people coming back from Vietnam and, and, and I'm not trying to, in any way lessen the impact that something like that has on a family or whatever. But uh, it does kind of bother me what I was pointing out there earlier that the media, you know, in a sense uses it as a, on a slow news day, hey, let's, let's drag some dead soldiers in here. It's, it's kind of like that's their attitude about it. Well, you know, what I think is that not only do military suicides increase after every major conflagration that America is involved in, but, Crime connected to veterans, both malum prohibitum and malum per se, malum and se, start to, uh, I wouldn't say skyrocket, but they certainly do uptick after every one of those wars and they're all home. Part of the reason is basic math in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the military after uh, 9-11 of 2001, the military increased by, and I can't remember the exact numbers now, but I believe it was a couple hundred thousand, which is a pretty large proportion, uh, something like, you know, 12, 15 percent, something like that, that it increased. And that's just a, a wild guess on my part. I don't have numbers to prove that. And now that number is, again, they're talking about cutting that amount. But, but, um, uh, but so you're just talking about more people involved. You're just increasing the number of there being veterans, so the proportions should mean that there would be an increased number of suicides, there'd be an increased number of rapes, there's going to be an increased number of bubblegum addictions, you know, uh, just because there's more numbers to begin with. Um, and then you throw into the mix the fact that, you know, combat is a very serious and horrible thing. Uh, to to not expect there to be an increase in all kinds of things like crime and suicide and drug use and to think there wouldn't be an increase would almost be uh well i think i i used the phrase before we kicked on the recorder you know stories like that are you know uh, water found to be wet sun thought to be warm <laughs> you know no i i, I agree 100 percent with what you're saying but what's interesting here is that I look at conscientious objectors, and I find that if you look, they have a, a broad and proud history throughout American letters and, and throughout the American conflicts. World War I saw a number of COs. What you saw in World War II was you saw a number of conscientious, conscientious objectors become smoke jumpers for the U.S. Forest Service in Montana and the, uh, the Intermountain West during World War II. So it certainly wouldn't be a question of courage. It's a question of conviction on their part. I wish there were more conscientious objectors, but there's not. I would say that for every conscientious objector, there's probably a thousand people who sign up. But if I can think of the quote, there was somebody who said that once the number of people who wish to be warriors are equivalent to that of conscientious objectors, war will be no more. You know, I'm not sure, but I think that was JFK. I think, uh, you know what it was, and I just found it and it reads, 
mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. War will exist until that distant day when the conscientious objector enjoys the same reputation and prestige that the warrior does today. JFK. So you are on it, Ben. And and that's not to uh, diminish the you know for those of us who are history nuts and we those of us who try as best we can to study tribal societies and ancient you know Stone Age societies and so forth to a certain extent the the warrior is absolutely necessary in human in the human condition because the warrior defends the village and defends the family defends the tribe. Um, and so that's not taking anything away from the warrior spirit and the warrior tradition. Um, if anything, you know, I suspect modern military is is a negative to the warrior culture. What's your thoughts on that, Bill? You know, I think a warrior culture is the Coast Guard surf rescue guy. It's the conscientious objector smoke jumper. It's It's the person who tends to swim against the tide and they stand loud and proud when they do so for the most part. Now, of course, you're going to have sociopaths and psychopaths in politics who, uh, who, who will do the same thing, but I wouldn't call them warriors. I think warriors are those who seek to best the inner conflicts that one experiences when you're about to see the elephant and you come out the other side unscathed, victorious, or possessed of a certain spazatura that other men envy. That's a really good definition. Um, with <laughs> you are so kind. Sometimes I just riff off these things and I feel like a beatnik, but there it is. You inspire me. <laughs> well, that kind of takes us to the other topic that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, we've kind of been bouncing off of it as we've gone, but I wanted to talk a little bit about statistics. Um, you know, you had said, uh, well, um, uh, here's my experience. I, I, uh, for several years, I'm not sure how many, four, f- four or five years, something like that, I had a business that was struggling. And so as a side thing, I did, uh, sort of a part-time consulting job with a, uh, um, market research company. And all, almost universally within the management of that market research company, we did statistics of all kinds, surveys of all kinds, everything from, you know, phone surveys where they would call uh, uh, 10,000 random people and ask them when you think of a hamburger restaurant, what, what you know, a fast food restaurant, what hamburger comes to your mind and everything from that to very specific calls with doctors where they were questioning them about specific uh, uh, prescriptions that they had given out and what their experiences were and what kind of you know side effects that they were seeing. This was a very uh, well-known uh, company that did that kind of professional surveys. And I did some consulting work with them for a few years. And I would say almost to a man, management knew that what they were doing was fluff. It was... I wouldn't say fake, but the the surveys can be tilted in any way that they want to tilt them. We could, if we were doing uh, surveys on restaurants, you could change the results you were getting from restaurants simply by cross-checking the um, uh, the, the numbers, the the telephone numbers where you're calling, and concentrate on areas where you know there's more old people, or where you know there's more younger people, or where you know it's you know uh, 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 lower income areas. And you can pretty much just by carefully choosing what time of the day you're calling. You make the odds greater of hitting a teenager at, say, 3.34 o'clock in the afternoon when you're calling residences, whereas you've got a much greater chance of hitting an elderly person if you're calling early in the day or you're calling a, a you know, working, possibly the parents of a working couple if you're calling later in the evening of the day. And you get vastly different answers according to how you tailor just the time of the day that you're making the phone calls. And and I think pretty much everybody in the industry from a management level up knows that. A lot of them won't admit it because they, the minute they do, you know, the cat's out of the bag and everybody understands that it's all a con anyway. Um, I just rambled on a lot more on that than I meant to, but... <laughs> but <laughs> well, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan, Ben, of Mad Men. I, I think it's a uh, a brilliant series. And one point that it seems to drive home for me when it comes to advertising, which I'm a spectator of and certainly not a professional in, is that 
the advertising agencies and all those entities drive consumer demand through their advertisements. And the better they are, the more products they sell. It's not that the products are superior. It's the fact that the products they sell, if, if a good advertising house gets a hold of them and they have a really savvy and clever, clever uh, commercial or, or promotional campaign for it, well, they'll sell more. Why is Bayer Aspirin the number one prescribed aspirin for doctors? It's because they gave them to the doctors for free. Why is it that America, you know, has, consumes 50%? We are 5% of the population in America. We consume 50% of all the pharmaceuticals that are, that are made globally on a, uh, on a yearly basis. Why is that? Well, it's because big pharma, the FDA, the USDA, and the AMA, and all the other Three and four letter agencies and organizations that are, that are tentacled through their orifices with the government want that to be the case. You know, I just had a heart attack two weeks ago and I had a stent put in and I had a, I won't bore you with how it came about or anything like that, but what they found was a 99% blockage, which is decades old and probably a, um, uh, a, a loss on my part of the genetic lottery because I take pretty good care of myself health-wise and fitness-wise and things like that. But I, I denied four of the six drugs they wanted to prescribe me, You know, one of which was statins. And I said, I'm, I'm not putting statins in my body. I'm presently on aspirin and one other drug that I need for the stent. But the other stuff they wanted to pile on, when you look at the side effects and you look at the side effects of those drugs interacting with other drugs that have side effects, it becomes, it becomes second and third order effects that can probably kill you in the process of trying to heal you. I, I hear these notions, speaking of stats, it's 25,000, 100,000, 150,000 people die in hospitals every year as a result of sepsis, malpractice, hospital conditions, whatever the case may be. But then again, how do we track that? Well, it's almost impossible to track because most people leave the hospital unless they stay there and die. Why did they die after they left the hospital? Could it be the hospital's fault? It could. Could it not be? Maybe so. It's like police brutality. I think that there is far more pr- police brutality than is reported in the United States. I think the underreporting and the non-reporting of brutality incidents is legion on the streets. I think it is much, much worse in that gulag system that we have with the local to the federal penitentiary system. That is probably one of the many shames that the U.S. government, you know, commits on the, on the American people on a, on a regular basis. Hey, let me throw something at you, Bill. Uh, this is kind of off sure. topic, but you, you, you touched on the police brutality there, and I thought I'd better yeah. say this before I forget about it. Um, earlier today, I was talking to a cab driver, and uh, we were talking about the difference in two towns, uh, Pensacola, Florida, and Mobile, Alabama. And now I have to preface this by saying that uh, my wife and I uh, are down here in our motorhome, and we're traveling around camping at different campgrounds. And we really, really, really love the people and the culture and everything down here. It's so nice and friendly. And it's not at all the stereotypical thinking that a lot of northerner people have, you know, the the racist hate and all this kind of stuff that's that's all been sold to you. I'm sure there's racists. There's racists everywhere. And I'm sure there's hate. There's hate everywhere. But a lot of the the negative uh stuff about the south is just nonsense. It's just um it's northerners who hate the southerners because they're not northerners. But <laughs> Um, but within the the different cultures here, we see variations from place to place. And I, so I was talking to this cab driver tonight, uh, just before I came and called you up, Bill, actually. Um, as a matter of fact, just for kicks and giggles, Bill, uh, for the listeners there, Bill was on Adam Kokesh's show right before he was, right before I called him for this show. So if you get the opportunity, get over to, uh, Adam Kokesh's show. It was probably on, on YouTube, wouldn't it be, Bill? It would be. Yeah, you can find Adam versus the man. Just uh, start page of that and you'll be able to find his new location in L.A. So you'll be able to see Bill on Adam's show and uh, uh, get a double dose of Bill tonight. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, so I was talking to this uh, cab driver about the difference in the two cities between Pensacola, Florida and Mobile, Alabama. Now, these two cities are about an hour's drive apart from each other. And uh, traveling around in this area, there, there's not a whole lot of physical difference. There's not a whole lot of, you know, uh, color difference. There's not a whole lot of cultural difference. And yet these two towns 
are drastically different in one way, and that is um, if you watch the the evening news in Mobile, they will tell about every shooting that's taken place, and they will highlight, you know, uh, what neighborhood the shooting took place, and if there were cops there, if the cops did the shooting, or if it was, you know, uh, civilian shooting, or however you want to phrase it. And then you look over at, at uh, Pensacola, and the cab driver was telling me that there are many times that she has been on a specific street known exactly where a shooting took place, looked at, seen a body under, you know, being bagged, uh, so to speak, knowing that there had been a shooting there, knowing that there was a casualty, knowing that there was um, uh, someone who died, and then listening to the TV, listening to the radio, and they don't mention that there was a shooting. And it's an odd thing that one town, Mobile, almost... Uh, it's, it's like a regular thing. It's almost like sports on the evening news to tell where the shootings were and so forth. And then there's Pensacola and it's just not spoken of on the TV. And there are, they do say sometimes when there's a shooting, but her indication of driving in this area is that it's, it's just not focused in Pensacola like it is in Mobile. I don't have a, a cause and effect here. All I'm doing is looking at an, an oddity, and I wonder how that correlates to cities like Baltimore or, you know, Indianapolis or Detroit or Denver or L.A. I wonder how, the you know, what would be the catalyst that would change their mind? It could be, one argument might be that Florida tends to be more of a tourist area, except the problem with that argument is Mobile is very much a, a tourist area. So I don't know. I I, I don't know. It's just an odd thing that I thought of when you mentioned uh, police brutality there. Sure, I think I, I I find it odd myself what you just related, but remember it's it's 22 minutes of I don't watch the news. As a matter of fact, we haven't had broadcast or cable or satellite TV in the house for 18 going on 19 years now, and I don't watch any news stories unless I'm trapped in a hotel and I happen to be watching it. But uh, other than that, it's 22 minutes of news. And they usually front load it with something that's going to attract viewers, and they promise usually some kind of brutal footage or something like that. But then these are the same prostitutes who make every excuse on planet Earth for the police maiming and killing somebody. But you'll hear them uh, poo-poo and badmouth a a civilian shooting of some type where he had no business doing that. He should have called 911, the rest of it. So I think there's certainly a bias, you know, there, uh, the uh, – the collectivist bias in the media is absolutely huge to include Fox News, which I think is is just a hideous station, much like oh, yeah. the collectivist news network. Yeah. And that they uh, it's just raw, raw government supremacism 24-7. One other thing that she mentioned, and I forgot to say it, was that she also pointed out that the local culture, um, people in Mobile, Alabama, tend to call the police immediately as soon as something like that happens. And from what she was saying, in a lot of the neighborhoods in Pensacola, there is more of a culture to not call the police unless there's actually a body to be dealt with or unless there's, uh, you know, the, the only way the police know there's a shooting is if the hospital reports it, which, you know, uh, that was back in my old in, in my old days when we used to you know, rough and tumble, we might say, uh, the one thing you never did was go to a hospital unless you were absolutely dying. Uh, we're talking about, you know, wounded. Uh, I can attest to that today, Ben. <laughs> so, uh, so any, any gunshot wounds or knife wounds or anything that we could patch up among ourselves, we certainly did it. We didn't involve the police. But she was indicating that that was kind of a part of the, of the, um, Pensacola culture as well, that they just have a tendency not to get the police involved unless they absolutely have to. And I thought, boy, we need more of that. We need that nationwide. We need people to recognize that it's not the best thing to do to call the police when you have a problem. That's I would have guessed the reverse, Ben. I would have thought that, that Mobile being an antebellum state. Okay, so uh, we had a little bit of Skype problems there. We're right back again, and I'm with Bill Bupert on the Bad Quaker Podcast. And we were talking about whether or not it's a good idea to call a cop 
and Bill, you were when when I last was able to hear what you're talking about, you pointed out the obvious that. Uh, it, it, it seems like Alabama should be the ones understanding that calling the authorities is a bad idea. Absolutely. And and by the way, speaking of calling the cops, don't call 911 for anything. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it. When I had my heart attack two weeks ago on Saturday, my, my wife said, uh, well, what do we do? I said, take me to the hospital. And her sister called her because she called her sister, who's an EMT, and her sister said, call 911, call 911, get him an ambulance. And I said, no, I don't want an ambulance, and I don't want to call 911. It would it would take them three times as long to get me to the hospital as her shuffling my uh, my carcass to the hospital herself. So that's what she did. We got there in 10 minutes, and the rest was taken care of, and I got out of there as soon as bloody possible. And if anybody has ever gotten a bill from an ambulance service, holy moly. <laughs> Here's what's interesting about ambulance services, Ben. Did you know that you can negotiate and dicker over a bill in Arizona on the ambulance service? Really? Now, whether they listen to you or not is one thing. But if you happen to be in an Aboriginal American ambulance or airlifted by an Aboriginal American company, you have to pay full freight, no, negoti- no negotiation permitted. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was unfortunate enough to be sitting in a pickup truck in uh, Sparks, Nevada, and another pickup truck landed on my head. Oh my and, god. Uh, so I didn't have much of a chance. They came and used their, you know, their jaws and ripped my truck apart to get me out of it, peel me out yeah. of it, and had me strapped to boards and the the first thing that I recall as as a real event when that took place because there's some things in my mind that I'm not sure whether they happened or not and Maybe when we're both at Porkfest sitting around a campfire, I'll, I'll tell you about uh, what some people might consider an after-death experience or whatever. But, but, uh, but I ha- but I don't know that that happened. That may have just been juices in my brain. But anyway, the <laughs> the first the first thing that I know that happened, I'm sitting there, and the the top of my I was in one of these compact pickup trucks, and a, a full-size four-wheel drive landed on top of my truck. And uh, his differential actually pushed the top of my uh, the top down against my forehead and, and brought the windshield up to my face. So the wind the the roof was on my on my head and the windshield was laying on my face. Oh and my uh, and so I'm just this vehicle is sort of wrapped around me. And so they the the uh, paramedic looks in the window and he he says this guy's still alive. <laughs> and, <laughs> You know, it's not necessarily the best bedside manners, but but they had assumed, looking at the truck from the outside, that they were going to look in and just see a skull splattered all over a seat. And so he was beside himself that you know that that I was alive. And then they don't move, don't move, we'll get you out of there. It was wild, but I didn't have a choice in that case. They uh, sure they, they had me, and that's understood. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, when we're traveling on American byways and highways now, they they are federally owned preserves. Even yeah. if it does say it's a local road. Yeah, very much so. But in, in any other case, you know, I, I quoted this statistic on uh, Freedom Fiend's show the other day, and it's worth kicking out again. It's not really a statistic, but um, the list of federal agencies who now have active paramilitary or SWAT units in, includes the IRS, the Department of Education, Department of Agriculture, the Railroad Retirement Board, has SWAT teams. The Tennessee Valley Authority has SWAT teams. The Office of Personnel Management has SWAT teams. The Consumer Product Safety Commission and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have SWAT teams. And that it's just mind-boggling that that's the police society that we're in. And you've done several articles recently on uh, on the growing police problem. Well, I have. In um, Mark Stevens and I who runs a broadcast out of Phoenix, he has a notion that the number of police agencies from local to the federal level is near 80,000. My guess, my not my guess, but my number that I've come to is 19,000. But between 19,000 and 80,000 police agencies from the local to the federal level exist. I think there's something on the order of over a million badged status thugs. Wow. And something I mentioned on Kokesh's show today is that how often do you see videos of these status police beating people up and maiming them and killing them? You see them all the time. Yeah. How often do you see those videos of mall cops? 
<laughs> True. Mall cops have a bad reputation, but nonetheless, I salute the mall cop because here's what's interesting about mall cops. They don't have the trifecta that police do that allow them to be the murderous, licensed to kill thugs that they are today. Number one, they don't have police union backing. Number two, they don't have qualified immunity. And number three, they don't have prostitutes singing their hero worship in every government media complex organ out there. Yeah. Those three things don't exist. Every time that mall cop goes to work, he is bonded and insured on everything he's going to make for the rest of his life for everything he does that day. And that provides a powerful economic incentive that even Mises would be proud of. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, before we kicked on the, the uh, recorder, we were also talking about a, a news story that uh, over in China, a huge uh, uh, violence, I don't know how to describe it, but a huge uh, ruckus broke out with thousands of people attacking a police van that was full of cops. Uh, some, uh, the, the cops were there, evidently the way I read it, the cops were beating a lady and a guy pulled out a cell phone or a camera or something and began filming it. And so they turned their wrath on him and, and, and killed him. They bashed his skull in and killed him. And the community reacted to that by attacking the cops. And uh, they just, the cops fled to a van that they had there. The mob, uh, or maybe not, maybe mob is a, a bad, maybe we should say the Citizens Action Committee um, <laughs> ran over, started bashing the van with sticks and rocks, overturned it, and they... Uh, Hmm. They executed justice. It, it, well, actually, those police beat that man with a hammer. Yeah, yeah. Because he, because he tried to videotape him, they killed him with a hammer because he expired the next day. Yeah. So the, this did take place, I think, over 24 or 48 hours. But I, I hate to be the harbinger of things to come, but if the American police state continues to behave in the fashion that they are – I don't think they have any measure of the pent-up rage that they have building up in the USSA as we speak. Yeah, there was a situation, I believe it was in Anaheim, uh, about a year ago or maybe longer, where the police had had a string of situations where they had shot either young black men in the back or young Hispanics in the back. Yeah. And several of them were fleeing at the time and some of them were actually in custody at the time. And, uh, of course, right around that same time, there was a very famous situation where a guy, a kid, was in the back seat of a police car, had been searched, was handcuffed with his hands behind his back in the police car, or I don't know if his hands were behind his back or not, but that's typically the procedure. And somehow the police came up with the story that he shot himself in the head, uh, that he committed suicide while handcuffed in the back seat of a. But all this was happening about that the same was in time. Dura, that was in Durham, actually, and his name was Jesus Huerta. Uh, in, in the situation in uh, Pasadena, it just about got to a, uh, a citizen's vigilante type. Oh, okay. okay. But, but yeah, but that the two, uh, the one that you're talking about that I was blending in, were actually yeah. unrelated. They were very far apart from each other. But it was all kind of in the okay. same uh, in the same realm of police doing just wildly outrageous things. It's astonishing because they say that the police failed to find the gun, and I mentioned this on Kokesh's show earlier this this this, this day because we're oh, talking in the, about in the backseat of the car, they still didn't come up with the gun. Well, here's what happened: is he managed he was cut, he had his hands cut behind his back, but he managed to uh, shoot himself in the head with a gun they didn't find. But number one, the gun happened to be the identical caliber that the police department used. And number two, all of the in-cabin video and audio equipment was not functioning during his expiration. Wow. Yeah. Just a, Isn't that the, astonishing? The coincidences are amazing. <laughs> That's right. It's, you know, one is luck, two is coincidence, three, a man knows what he's about. That's what we say about shooting. I always, whenever it's a, a situation like this, I always bring up that really horrible racist joke where uh, and this is a, a slam against the South again, but you can place the joke anywhere you want. That's the wonderful thing about a good joke. You can you can put it anywhere. So you could put it in New York City. You could put it in Detroit. You could uh, put it in Los Angeles. You can make the victim in the joke uh, black. You could make him Asian. You could make him white. You could make him a, a Jew, or or you could make him of Italian descent, or you know whatever you wanted to. It's according to how you want to do the joke. But the old joke is. The sheriff is standing there. They're pulling this dead black man 
out of a river. He's wrapped head to toe in chain, and the sheriff looks at the media and says, just like a, you know, f- use the derogatory phrase here, to steal more chain than he can swim across the river with. And that's, that's kind of the, what we're supposed to buy. Like, oh yeah, yeah, he killed himself. He's sitting in the back seat of a car, decides, uh, you know, I'm right-handed, but I'm going to take my left hand, shoot myself in the left side of my head, even though my hands are cuffed behind my back and I've already been searched for a gun. And it just so happens the caliber is the same as the cops are carrying. Who'd have guessed? And, and the prostitutes will sing their praises. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, I think we can go on there. Okay. So we paused because of some uh, outside noise, but we were, uh, but I was whining about cops, and Bill was listening to me. But I, I, start, I started to reference uh, two situations that I watched in Ohio in 2013, and I say watched. I, you know, I saw this on YouTube and so forth in the news. I didn't, I didn't actually, I wasn't there watching. But there were two different situations. One happened in inner city uh, Cleveland, I believe. And it was uh, mostly black neighborhood in inner city Cleveland, Cleveland, where the cops were very clearly brutalizing these people. And the YouTube video is from a, like a second or third story window shooting down onto the scene where the cops are doing their deed. And, and you can see a good portion of the neighborhood and there are a lot of people in windows looking out, but none of the residents uh, the, let's put it this way. The residents have watched the whipping boy procedure happen enough that they know that they are to stay inside, stay quiet, and don't interfere. And the procedure, you know, the police go through the procedure of punishing uh, the, the, the victim, the whipping boy that they've singled out to beat in front of all of us. And there's one of the residents that's silly enough that he comes out and tries to object to the police beating this poor man. And so they end up uh, ransacking that guy's house. The cops end up ransacking that guy's house and pulling everybody out of that house and roughing them all up. And the whole time, the neighborhood, it's, it's like there's nobody in the neighborhood unless you look at the windows and there's people looking out their windows. But at some point, and I remember thinking the whole time I was watching that, at some point, people are not going to just hide behind their windows. There's, there's going to be stuff that takes place. And then there, right around the same time frame, there was a similar situation in a predominantly white neighborhood in the outskirts, I believe it was the same town in Ohio of Cleveland, and it was in a what might be considered a poor white area in, in the, uh, out, further beyond the suburbs even of, of Cleveland, where a cop was clearly brutalizing uh, this family that he had pulled over and some of the neighbors are starting to come out and trying to get involved and the cop starts calling for backups and the neighbors start to back away. But there's still this uneasiness like, you know, you've got one cop who's being a complete jerk and you probably got 30 people out there that could stop him. And yet, and they want to, you can see they want to stop him and they come up and they say things to him and they're, they've got their cameras on him, they're filming him and they're trying to encourage him to stop beating this woman, stop pulling her hair, stop shoving the guy down. And and yet there's this tipping point that they won't go over and actually stop him. And for whatever, you know, China's been under oppression for a very long time. And for whatever reason, the people in China are to the point of where they're not taking that from the cops anymore. But over here in the U.S., we're still kind of taking it. But and and I'm not trying to cross that line of the the argument a lot of libertarians had last year about whether when to shoot a cop and all this kind of thing. It's just becoming obvious that at some point that that tipping point is going to be crossed. You mean the Christopher Cantwell business? Yeah, yeah. I'm not and Larkin Rose. I'm not really trying to to restart that whole thing again, but I'm just saying that at some point neighborhoods, not necessarily liberty activists or whatever, but at some point somebody is going to crack open a window and go um, all Warsaw on those people. You know what I'm saying? I think the I think the tipping point is approaching. And when we see China and we see what's happening in the Ukraine and we see what what's happening in globally happening globally, you're you're starting to see that. One thing that I think, Ben, every time I pass an unfortunate taxpayer who's been stopped by the thugs and he's on the side of the road and the flashing lights on the vehicles right behind the vehicle he stopped. I think to myself, hey, another convert to libertarianism. <laughs> For the most part, I think another convert because I am certain 
almost without a doubt in 90% of the cases, the cop approached that citizen as if he was ready to ventilate him at the slightest pretext of him being threatened or feeling as if he saw a furtive movement. Yeah, let's explain ventilating too because I know exactly what you meant by that. That's when you take a – you're ventilating a box when you take a box and poke a bunch of holes in it, right? Indeed, yeah. Yeah, so and because the the cops have a license to kill in America, unfortunately, and I think that that's really going to come back to haunt them. Yeah, and we're seeing this more and more with the tendency of cops to shoot people's dogs for just almost any reason whatsoever. Shoot the dogs. Absolutely, and you know what what disturbs me about the dog shooting? And I did a five part series on on police brutality. As a matter of fact, that was the reason I came on on um, Adam's show today. Was it's bad enough to shoot – what a society does with its most innocent, whether they're the unborn or animals or the disabled or the elderly, is a real good indicator of the moral center and compass of that society. So I don't think the USSA is faring too well from a government perspective when it comes to their balance on that moral compass. But the two other things that disturb me is that one predictor of serial killer behavior is adolescent torture, maiming, and killing of animals. And the other indicator of sociopathic behavior is after doing such a thing, you laugh and make light of it. I found one out of four or one out of three cases of dog killings in which the cops quite literally celebrated what they did to those animals. Yeah. And that that tells me a lot that I need to know. It's sort of like when I'm having a conversation with somebody I just met, if I know their position on gun ownership, I can pretty much predict who they are. Um, now, what was the number you quoted earlier about how many – what is the estimated number of uh, uh, police in the U.S.? One million plus, 19,000 departments, but it could be 80,000. So it's between 19,000 and 80,000 departments from the local to the federal level. Okay, so so let's make a wild number, just round it off to a million, and there's a, about a half a million active, du- active duty uh, members of the uh, military. No, there's there's actually um, almost two million with all the services. Oh, okay. Maybe I was yeah. what I was reading. Yeah. Maybe was just what was deployed overseas. Is and that I possible? think what you may have been reading too was the number in the U.S. Army. Oh, that could be. Okay. Yeah. That could. Yeah. yeah, because that's probably right. Because the the person who was talking was uh, was Army. So okay. that's yeah. that's probably right. And they're talking about gutting them and bringing them down to 350, 300, and, and I applaud that. I want to see them come down to zero. Yeah. I'd like to see the U.S. Army go away, but that's another show. I could describe to you why. So uh, either way, so how many are we looking at here as far as in the military, in all branches, in all deployments, and uh, in addition to all uh, police in the U.S.? I think you're looking at 2 million, but this is certainly a number we could stipulate because that's one thing the government is pretty good at accounting is the number of people that they have in uniform. And so let's throw in another million of uh, of government employees who might be pressed into service under certain circumstances. And we're still talking about controlling a population of 350 million people in the United States. Uh, that's a tiny tiny flea on the tail of a dog (laughs) wagging that entire dog it is but you and i are both history nuts ben and you i both know that in six seven thousand years of recorded western history Mm -hmm. i'm not too hip on eastern history because i don't speak the language but in western history it has always been a tiny minority that has put put the shackles the reins and the uh the jaw bit into the population and and rode them around that's what humans enjoy doing, it seems. Yeah. Even when we were talking about Spartacus, the amount of slaves that rose up was a tiny fragment of the – A of tiny the, fragment of the total. Yeah. yeah. And they made a huge You know impact. what? You look at slavery in the south. You look at slavery in Rome. You look at slavery in Greece. You look at slavery in Sparta. If it weren't for the helots who comprised 85% of the population, the, the Spartans could not be the, the totalitarian military – gargantuan behemoth that they were. They couldn't have done it absent the slaves because then they would have had to work at productive things instead of uh, doing things at spear point. Yeah, yeah. They would have had to have made a living instead of you know, honing the art of war to the point that they did. Exactly. I almost said gunpoint, but then I thought Sparta would be spear point. <laughs> 
Well, Bill, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap it up today? Well, I just want to say, once again, it's it's always an honor to come on your show, Ben. Can't wait to see you at Porkfest when we uh, share a campfire or two together. And that people should just keep their ear to the ground because we live in interesting times. And you never know. You know, one of our favorite hosts out there, Michael Dean, likes to talk about that point of redemption, you know, where we end on redemption. And and if I and if I may be so bold, the redemption here is that more and more people, and I know there's a confirmation bias for you and I and the people that we hang out with, but I get the sense that more and more people are starting to get the riff that being led around is not the way to a moral life, and that being free to do as we wish as long as we don't harm others is the part of a virtuous life. And that when they look at everything that the government does on a daily basis to their friends, families, neighbors, and and whenever they look at the news, and they can't be think, thinking, wow, I need more of that. I don't think any of them are thinking, I need more government and I need more of the state to make me better off. I think we may reach that very tipping point that you're always referring to, Ben, where people finally say, you know what? Enough is enough. And not only am I going to question authority, but I'm going to question obedience. Yeah, let me before we break off, let me take one more quick quick swipe at Stefan Molyneux. His his uh, uh show that I had listened to in my uh, uh talking about him earlier was called the title of it was called How They Are Winning and We Are Losing. And I have just the opposite message. Uh you know, I don't think they're winning. I think um I have said this a lot and my regular listeners will know that this is something that I I strongly believe. We have masters over us worldwide because there's a market for it um, when there becomes a market for freedom we there is no amount of force that can prohibit that freedom prohibitions uh, through the use of government force have never worked they never will work when there's a market demand for freedom we'll get freedom and the thing that drives the demand for freedom is what bill what you were referring to there a moment ago when that cop pulls you over and starts uh, that whole routine, right at that moment, you want freedom. You have a desire for freedom. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative or religious or non-religious. It doesn't matter. At the point that the oppression is on you, when the boot is on your throat, when that spear is poking you in the back, and when the gun is pointed at your at your forehead or at your child's forehead, there is no question in your mind, there's a market for freedom. And at some point, the market for freedom will overcome the market for uh, voluntary oppression. And, you know, more and more people will say, I- I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not asking permission. I'm not, I'm not following orders. I'm not going to sit back and let this take place. So I, I agree, Ben. I think yeah. just the opposite of what Stefan said. I think, I think this is a stacked deck. I think we're going to win. We may not win this year or even in our lifetime, but we're going to win. Well, what I think, too, is that not only do I hear this refrain often where they say, well, with technology, 1984, Brave New World, it's all here. The government's going to have an edge. I happen to use Apple products. The government doesn't like Apple products. (laughs) I love Apple because Apple is very intuitive for me as a non-computer guy. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty much a a non-techie guy, and it works for me brilliantly. It's a small part of the market share, but it's starting to expand and expand. And the other thing is the government can never get out front of hackers. Right. It simply can't do it because it isn't built to do it. Yeah. It isn't built to respond in an agile, adaptive, and quick fashion. It moves at a glacial pace, and it usually does one-size-fits-all. And you can look at many government programs, for instance, within your areas of expertise and your audience or you, Ben. But for me, when I look at DOD, I think that, see things like the F-22, the F-35, and D-6A, which is a, a common ground sensor device that they have out there. Mm-hmm. They have poured tens of billions into these, and they are broken. Yeah. They, are, they are so broken, they cannot achieve what they set out to do, and they will not achieve what they're set out to do, but they still pour money into it. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the salvation is they're simply going to bankrupt themselves. Yeah. Unfortunately, they'll take us with them. <laughs> well, these things are always ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, thanks a ton for coming back on the show with me. I really can't wait to see you up in uh, New Hampshire. 
And I, I, I'll just take a little shot at that too. I would have had an actual recorded Porkfest commercial on tonight. I made that offer, and uh, people have not come through on their end uh, to let that happen. So if if you're having anything to do with the, uh, uh, not you, Bill, but to the listeners, if you have anything to do with the the folks up there in New Hampshire. You know, if you want that commercial on here, let's get it done. I'd be more than happy to have played it once or twice during this show. But uh, but anyway, Bill, I really look forward to seeing you at Pork Fest and Excellent. sitting around. A Thanks camp- for having me on. Yeah, and it's sitting around sharing a campfire. It's just yeah, I can't wait. You know, it'll be great. Bring guns. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you, Ben. Folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.